Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to pick up at verse 26. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the humility of your son, Jesus Christ, for his birth from a woman, Father, under the law, so that he might redeem sinful men and women and children. Lord, we thank you for his his powerful and good and humiliating work to rescue our souls from hell. And I pray, Father, as we meditate on these things this evening, that our hearts would be filled with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So for ages, God had been speaking through His prophets to the people of Israel through uh, a thousand years. And near the end of Israel's very existence, there was a flurry of activity of, of the prophets, a crescendo in the voices of the prophets warning of God's impending judgment toward Israel. Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah give warnings. Warnings about this coming judgment. Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi speak after Israel has been violently removed from their land because of their sin. But they also offer some hope that God would rescue them. Malachi, as you you will remember, ends with this promise of Jesus coming to his people. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children 
and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So those are the last words of the prophets for four centuries, four and a half centuries. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and we get no more history from the scriptures about that city. Right? We, don't, we don't learn anything else after Nehemiah. There's silence from God like the calm before a storm when the winds die down. You know, and, there, and you know it's only, uh, only about to pick up. Only this silence is a long silence, and the storm that is coming will be like nothing that has happened in the history of the world. Malachi said, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so the events we're looking at are at the beginning of this, this reopening, this breaking forth of, of God, his son suddenly coming to his temple. The silence of centuries that calm before the storm is broken by the visitation of angels. It's broken by the presence of celestial abnormalities, a star in the sky marking an obscure little town. The turning of the attention of the nobles and kings to a stable, the singing and praising of angels. And the full song is completed when uh, Jesus is born. Right? By, and and it, this is the, the birth of a promised Messiah, the, the second person of the Trini, Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, taking on flesh and dwelling among His people. And if Jesus' birth is, is likened to the first chords blasting from the, uh, the full ensemble of a symphony orchestra, the, the events we're looking at are those tense moments after uh, tuning and before the first chord. Right? <clears throat> the violinists put their bows just above the strings, the oboists wet their reeds, the brass put the, brass push the mouthpieces into their lips, and the percussionists raise their sticks, and the conductor lifts the baton in the air, and he inhales, and he's about to give his count. And that's where we are when it comes to Jesus coming into this world in this passage. Not quite there, but everything is ready to begin. All of this preparation before the symphony of God's of the birth of God's Son is where we are in things. Messages are coming to certain individuals. Zacharias and Elizabeth are hearing of a birth, um, of the, you know, hearing of a birth, um, experiencing the opening of Elizabeth's barren womb, and that their sons would be, their son, their son would be a forerunner to the Messiah. And the words of that final prophecy before the centuries of silence are repeated by the angel who says, it is he, John, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And we move a step closer to the birth of the Messiah, the great blast of the first chord of the orchestra. And now, now we turn to our passage and we see that, that a, a named angel, right, the angel Gabriel, 
was sent to speak to a virgin named Mary who was engaged, betrothed to Joseph, a descendant of David. This, this angel, the angel Gabriel, uh, you remember, has been doing work through history. Right? One of the more prominent works that we read of the angel Gabriel is if we go to the, um, to the book of, of Daniel. Right? And Daniel gets to talk with, with the angel Gabriel. And I take it that verse 10 is also the angel Gabriel. He comes and speaks to Daniel in chapter 9. And, and then in 10 we read this, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great comf- conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, this is chapter 10, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Right, And it goes on and describes this, and that's where Gabriel mentions that Michael... Michael, the, uh, another archangel, is, is doing warfare, right? And so, but, but my whole point in that is, notice the difference between the experience that Daniel had and the sweetness of the experience that, that Mary had, right? She doesn't seem to be in as, as um, shocked a state, um, but the angels, and an angel appearing before you is, a, is an intensely terrifying experience. And the reason it's a terrifying experience is not because angels are somehow in, um, uh, incredibly um, scary. The reason is, is that they go to the temple of God and sit about His throne doing His will. And just like when Moses came down from the hill and the the residue of God's glory scared the people, so the residue of the glory of God that um, emanates from angels scares men. And so this is about the fear of the Lord. Whenever we see somebody falling before the angel of the Lord or falling bef- who, who is the pre-incarnate Christ or falling before an angel, it's because they're reflecting the glory of God. And yet here... 
to a 13-year-old Mary or so, 12, maybe, 13, 14-year-old Mary, the angel comes and there's a sweetness to um, their interaction. It doesn't seem to be that fear. That may be the mercy of the Lord toward her. And um, anyway, this is the angel Gabriel. He had conversed with Daniel ages before. He's speaking, uh, speaking to Daniel about the time of the end. Now he appears to speak of the amazing events that are just about to occur. He makes several important points or explanations to Mary. First, the angel Gabriel gives Mary a greeting and a blessing, right? Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. It's not a normal salutation, and one that quite naturally, in Mary's response, perplexed her, right? That's not, one, you're not normally conversing with an angel, and two, you don't normally receive that sort of of clear, pronounced blessing. Um, favored one. Greetings, favored one. How, how am I favored, she's thinking. What does he mean by that? Why has he used that name for me? What does he know about my situation? How can this be? What is going on here? All those questions would be going through our heads. And uh, naturally, that's what is happening to Mary. In kindness, the angel Gabriel is going to explain what he means very shortly. He doesn't leave it a mystery. He begins with comfort, no need to fear, don't be afraid. Then he says, you have found favor with God. So what's this favor? What, why, am, why am I the favored one? She's favored because she will be used by God in an unparalleled way in the salvation of man. Right? She's favored. There, there is no other person like Mary right, who, whose womb is used um, by the Holy Spirit uh, to bring the Son of God, to enflesh the Son of God eternally, right? She's favored, but she's also favored for the reasons that he, that the angel lays out here. First, she would have a son. That's to be favored, right? She's going to have a child. She's known that her, her, her cousin has been barren and is now with child, and now she's going to have a child, and that is a blessing. The very fact that she would have a child is proof of the Lord's favor. This is the way that scriptures speak of children and childbirth. That is a blessing of God, in fact, that it is a reward. Right? It is hard in, in this day and age when children are slaughtered in the womb to wrap our heads around this. Conception is so easy, right, we think, especially with the addition of fertility science and labor and delivery very seldom ends in fatalities as it had in the past. And rather than seeing pregnancy as a blessing, we see it as a curse, an inconvenience, a giving up a freedom, a reason that um, we should commit murder so that we can finish our college degree. But this is not how it's spoken of in Scripture. Not at all, and not ever, and not even close. The woman whose womb is opened is said to have had her reproach taken away, as it is said of Rachel when she conceived. Her reproach is taken away. Right? 
The fruit of the womb is a blessing from God. It is God's favor. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So Mary is favored because her womb is going to be open. She's favored because uh, she will have a child. She will have a son, right? And so um, the fruit of the womb is a reward, and that is her reward as well. Second, she's favored because she... In that her, in her son would be like no other son who had ever been born. Right? That son will be named Jesus, which is from the Hebrew Joshua, the name of the Messiah. Right? In Matthew, we read that Joseph learned the same thing, and he's, a, he's given a reason for the name. He's, he's given an explanation of the name and what the name means, really. He will save his people from their sins. Pure and simple. That's what Joshua means. That's what Jesus means. He will save his people from their sins. So there, in the name of her son, is a promise of salvation. She would know this. The Joshua, Jesus, would, would resonate with her and be a name filled with meaning to her. Right? She also learns that her son would be extraordinary. Gabriel tells her that her son will be great. How great? Um... There aren't enough superlatives to uh, define his greatness, right? He, he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. In other words, he will be what he has been eternally. He is equal to the Father in all things. The Messiah would be recognized by his church as nothing less than very God. He will sit on the throne of his, father, his father's ancestor, King David. He will rule a kingdom that has no end, right? So he's a king that doesn't have to worry about um, revolts rising up and knocking him off the throne. His throne is his, and he has all power to protect it. The prophecy spoken long ago would be resonating through Mary's mind. Her son would be the one who in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Amos... um, All of them said there would be one to occupy the throne of David would be the son of David, this kingdom unlike the kingdoms of the world which rise and fall age after age, Nineveh, Babylon, Egypt, Carthage, Rome, will not have an end. This kingdom will not have an end. It has begun. It, It will be unassailable. And so we have a picture of the perfect eternal rest of this kingdom where we would expect it in the last book of our Bibles. Right? I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the kingdom the angel Gabriel speaks of here to Mary, whose son would reign there as the sovereign king. And yet, King Jesus, son of the Most High, would be born of a woman. Right? For nine months, Mary's womb would house the Son of God. The Son of the Most High would receive His humanity from her. 
right? From her egg, he receives his humanity. He would depend upon Mary's body for nourishment. Be, he would be incapable of controlling his muscles. He would cry and spit up and soil himself. Right? And Mary, though these things are still settling in, she ponders them in her heart, wonders how this is going to happen. She seems to accept what the angel says about the kind of son she is going to have, but she doesn't understand the mechanics. Right? She, asks, she asks the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? She had not been with a man. Right? She had been honorable. She was waiting while she was espoused to her husband, Joseph. She was a virgin, but she knew enough about the way things worked that she wondered how she would conceive. Right? The angel tells her she, how she would conceive. She would have a child who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. More extraordinary information. Not quite sure she could fully comprehend what that meant, to, that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and overshadow her, and then she would be pregnant. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now what does one say to such things? Right? How did the Holy Spirit work with Mary's egg? What is a mechanistic explanation of these things? How did the Son of God move there? <clears throat> these are questions that are prying too deep, right? There are questions that um, sometimes fascinate us, but Calvin would say it's impious even to think of those questions, right? And we don't want to go beyond Scripture. We don't want to go beyond the testimony of Scripture. That's always a temptation. There's some people who are always fascinated, not by what's on the page, but what lies between the cracks of the verses. Those people will make shipwreck of their faith. Right? Always trying to find the answers to questions that God has left mysterious and has not answered in His Word. And then, inevitably, when you try to find all those unanswered questions, you neglect the answers to the questions that are obvious and written on the page. But J.C. Ryle says this, We shall do well to follow the example of the angel in all our reflections on this deep subject. Let us ever regard it with holy reverence and abstain from those unseemly and unprofitable speculations upon it in which some have unhappily indulged. Enough for us to know that the Word was made flesh, and that when the Son of God came into the world, a real body was prepared for Him, so that He took part of our flesh and blood and was made of a woman. Here we must stop. The manner in which all this was effected is wisely hidden from us. If we attempt to pry beyond this point, we shall but darken counsel by words without knowledge and rush in where angels fear to tread. In a religion which really comes down from heaven, there must needs be mysteries. Of such mysteries in Christianity, the incarnation is one. It is a mystery. We do not and perhaps may never understand the mechanics of it. 
But we don't, and we don't learn very much here. We do not learn very much. Other than that, the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary and overshadow her. And she would be pregnant with a child, the Son of the Most High. The operation of the Spirit would be secret. And just like other miracles, we would see its results, but not have an explanation for how it happened other than the power of God. That's the only explanation. And then, and then the encouragement of the angel Gabriel continues. He reveals that Elizabeth is to have a child as well, though she has been barren her entire life. And the angel concludes with this beautiful statement, for nothing will be impossible with God. Right? No doubt Mary is astonished by the message she has received, she is contemplating the very fact of a visitation from an angel. She is contemplating her own miraculous pregnancy. She is contemplating the kind of son she would have. She's contemplating the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, the consummation of the ages that would begin via her own body. And she, like you or I, would be saying, It's impossible. This is impossible. This is crazy. What is going on? And the angel Gabriel assures her that this is possible. This is possible because God is doing it. All things are possible for God. Right? All things are possible for God. Now a brief challenge. Christians take these things outlined in this passage to be historical fact. Right? If they are not historical fact then the foundation of our religion is undone, but you do believe these are historical fact, right? You believe that God has a son, that that eternal son became the God-man by means of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. You believe these things, right? You believe that this is actual history. You celebrate Christmas not as an opportunity to to uh, fill the, the coffers of Walmart, right, and Amazon, but as the coming of the Son of God to save His people from their sins. So if you believe these things, these strange and mysterious and difficult Things are historical facts. Why do you fail to believe that he can do the littlest things in your life? Right? That he can change you from being a grumpy personality to being a happy personality. Why do we fail to believe that he can change the heart of a loved one? Why do we fail to believe that he can release me from bondage to or addiction to certain substances and feelings and emotions and other things that hold us in bondage? Why do we fail to believe that he can make my marriage glorious? Right? Why do we fail to believe that he can heal um, aching bones and, and uh, excruciating kidneys? 
Why do we fail to believe that he can turn around a struggling business? Right? Why do we fail to believe that he can grow a church? Why do we fail to believe that God can bring us a spouse? Why do we fail to believe that God can save me from my sins? Right? For some, some of us, that's the hardest one to believe. Feel like our sins are so scandalous that God would not be pleased to forgive us our sins, but would rather be more pleased to judge us. Right? And so we have to think that no, no, the Son of God came to save sinners. And we have to believe that. In the end, we see in this these amazing things that Mary is contemplating, these amazing things that are announced to her, the consummation of so many of the prophecies of Scripture coming in this one moment, and how encouraging that at the end of it, the angel just says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And so these huge things, these huge cataclysmic offerings, right, um, allow us to believe that, well, God, if God does that, God can do what I've asked Him to do. God can do the the little things that I've asked him to do, right? And, and then you think about the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead, and we all celebrate that too, and we all think of that as historical fact, and the same thing comes to mind there. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, why is it that we can't believe that he will answer a prayer that I get an A in Spanish? You know? Or that he can make me work hard so that I get an A in Spanish. Right. Now, this is, this is the God that we serve. He has given us magnificent promises. And nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And that's why we go to him in prayer. That's why we trust him. But these historical things, these things that we believe are the heart of Christianity should encourage us to trust God in every and all situations, right? Nothing will be impossible with God. You believe God took on flesh. You believe a woman named Mary carried the Son of God in her womb for months. You believe Jesus was both fully God and fully man. You believe these great things. And why can't we believe the small things? Again, J.C. Ryle says, There is no sin too black and bad to be pardoned. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. There is no heart too hard and wicked to be changed. The heart of stone can be made a heart of flesh. There is no work too hard for a believer to do. We may do all things through Christ strengthening us. There is no trial too hard to be borne. The grace of God is sufficient for us. There is no promise too great to be fulfilled. Christ's words never pass away in what he has promised he is able to perform. There is no difficulty too great for a believer to overcome. When God is for us, who shall be against us? The mountain shall become a plain. Let principles like these be continually before our minds. The angel's receipt is an invaluable remedy. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. That's a great image, isn't it? Let me say that again. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. He is powerful. He is powerful. He can do what you ask of Him and way beyond what you even think or imagine. 
that he can do. So believe this, nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for believing that there are many things that are impossible for you. Forgive us for thinking that you you can't hear us when we cry out to you. Forgive us for thinking that there are things just that are left up to chance and left up to the forces of nature and left up to uh, other people's decision and it's out of your control. Father, those are blasphemous thoughts. And we ask that you would forgive us for entertaining them. Father, there is nothing that is impossible for you and, and, and we are grateful for your, your power. I pray that we would live and rest in your omnipotence. Father, that we would not get confused, not struggle, and think that you, at certain points, do not have a long enough arm uh, to deal with our complaints and to deal with our requests. But Father, may may we trust you. May we pray to you. May we be in awe of all that you've done through history and may that, that filter down into our everyday lives so that we might walk by faith. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.